0: Earlier this year, we saw a news story about a family who bought a home in Epping in Sydney with the intention of demolishing it and building a new one on the site. It's in a suburban street. Seems like a reasonable assumption that they'd be able to get a DA approved. So they went ahead and they demolished before they submitted plans to Parramatta Council. And to their horror, the council advised them that they couldn't build on the site because it's in a flood zone. It got me thinking about what an urban planner might have to say about this tale of woe. And further to that, What other assumptions could be dangerous as we go about planning property improvements? Whether you want to do something seemingly minor like building a new fence, right through to a multi unit development. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that
1: never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready, and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide.
2: And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional.
0: Today we've invited an experienced urban planner to explain what's involved in gaining approval for property improvements. We want to know how easy it is to make devastating mistakes and of course, how to avoid making them. Ellie Gerscheit is a director of Navon Planning and an urban planner with over 15 years experience. Based in Sydney, he knows the ins and outs of councils while also understanding the requirements of his clients, the property owners. He regularly appears as an expert witness before the New South Wales Land and Environment Court, so we imagine he may be able to share some meaty case studies with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Ellie. I'm
2: looking
3: forward to this chat.
2: Thank
3: you, Veronica, and thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to it.
2: Ellie, I mean, we've done over 250 episodes, we haven't done too much on this sort of development space and the planning space in particular, and I think it's a bit of a gap in in our sort of five years, I guess. Um, before we get into, that, I know, lots of juicy stories around maybe the flood zone or there's lots of things, maybe it's a good idea just to sort of maybe just talk about the planning process. I think a lot of people don't really understand how it works and the different avenues, etc. And, you know, as succinctly as you can, I guess, talk through... You know, the general process people need to go through, you know, whether they're doing a minor or a major reno.
3: Yeah, good point, Chris. A lot of people just think town planning has to do with getting an approval for a house. Or usually when you get a refusal, that's when people think about town planners, you know. Oh my gosh, the town planner refused my you know new home or my renovation. But it actually comes a lot further on. You need to look at things a lot earlier on in the process. So I recommend people, whether they're looking to buy a property or they own a property, to get a town planner on board very early on, just like they would get an architect or a surveyor on board, because you need to have that thorough understanding of, number one, I guess, what are the issues that apply to the site, including flooding and heritage and bushfire, as well as what are the controls that apply to the site also, in terms of, well, what's the development potential uh, that you could achieve on the site.
2: So you get a town planner involved, but then they say you can do X, Y, Z, and then what's the process then, you know, just in terms of talking it through in terms of what do you, do you have to lodge it with council? What, what, what documents do you need to provide? What's the sort of process?
3: Yeah, so also a good question. So TAMPLA and generally, uh, I like to call them, we're an advocate for the client. So we're an advocate for the project. You know, if it's a project, so we, we have to keep the design in check with the council's regulations. Uh, if there's an aspect of the design which might not comply, uh, and we think, hey, it's a you know, had give it a go, it's been done down the road or something like that, or the impacts are not as great as what council might think, then we might say, okay, we're we're prepared to support that non-compliance for various reasons.
0: Can we tease this out just a little bit? Um, yeah, there's, t- there's town planners at work for councils too, aren't there?
3: Correct. Yes. Yeah, so I guess there's generally two types of town planners. Let's say. There's the town planners that you hear about at councils, as well as state government. So in 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 a government role, so they're the town planners that I guess assess um, applications, as well as as a side of town planning called strategic planning, where they rezone land and and say okay, the trains and the metro lines have to go here. All that you know, large scale planning. So that's I guess from the government uh, point of view from a, the other side of the fence, from a consultant point of view. So town planners can also be consultants such as myself. Uh, so really giving advice to clients uh, as well as really um, ensuring uh, projects get approved in a timely fashion.
0: And so when you say that you're the client's advocate or the, the property owner's advocate, um, in in pitching, I guess, the plans to the council, it sounds a little chicken and the egg. Do you go to the architect first and get the plans drawn up or do you go to the town planner first and, and work out what the architect, well, constraints the architect should be working with? And in which case, doesn't why wouldn't the architect know that?
3: Yeah, you've got to do both, right? An architect uh, can understand the council regulations, right? And they can, in a way, do what we do as town planners. But in saying that, you, what I tell architects is you need to know your your experience and your your boundaries for it i tell them for example there's no way in hell that i would start you know sketching a a, a plan of a block of apartments right vice versa an architect shouldn't pretend that they're a town planner and they know what a town planner does and what you know so you do essentially need those different i guess uh experts on your team yeah yeah i don't think i don't think you'd be a jack of all trades as much as i'd love to be one but you know but you can't.
0: It's the same on the property buying side of things. You know, that there's you got we, we always say you've got to stick to your lane. You've got to know what your area of expertise is. Unfortunately, everybody thinks they're a property expert, so everybody oversteps the mark. But, uh, well, not everybody, but a lot of people do. Um, can we go back to the couple who demolished their house, you know, in Epping that I read about in the intro? You know, because they, they basically then discovered they couldn't build anything on the site. And the news story at the time focused on this being very unfair. But, you know, from a town planner's perspective, when you when you hear of a story like that, what do you think really is the story? Like, what, is it unfair? Uh, you know what I mean? What could they have known? I mean, I, I can sort of guess what they should have discovered before they bought it. But what goes through your mind when you hear a story like that?
3: Well, there's obviously two sides to a coin. Uh, I did re-watch the the, um, the episode last night, just to refresh my memory about it. Um, they did a few things wrong. Um they're naive. They were naive, just like most mum and dads are. They went with a project home company. Now, I'm I'm a fan of project home companies, believe it or not. They are very good at usually very good at building homes and all of that. But they're crappy at dealing with councils. So that's that's where they fall short. And I have helped um, a few of them before and they actually really need guidance, even even after I helped them, they still need a bit of a push. Because I don't have that council insight into what goes on behind the scenes, I've worked in two councils before, so I I kind of have a good idea what goes on behind the scenes and what are the expectations. So they they made a lot of errors. Um, I would say starting off removing demolishing the brick home without approval, that was a no-no. You know, I'm just going off what I've what I've read in the article as well as the as well as what was in the uh, on the TV. So, um, so that wasn't, you know, uh, demolishing a building and that approval, it, it is a
2: legal issue. Um, especially if it had some type of heritage overlay, right? Like I've, it, it can be, you know, you have to rebuild it like it was and, um, you know, certain areas, the heritage facade, for example, you know, could be extremely costly if you, you know, make a mistake like that, right? You could get fined hundreds of thousands of dollars for doing
3: something, something like that. You know, they're a tree without approval is also a name of all these things. And, you know, they, well, what they did was they signed up probably with the best project home company, good price, and they were in their hands. Then what having a got project home companies? But I'm just telling you what, what I see, uh, what was part of the problem for them. Uh, um, just
0: so th- just step in for a sec. So, but a project home company should know you can't demolish a building without approval. You would think they do it day in, day out, right? that is what I kept thinking but who demolished it? it's it's a specialist job not anyone can go in there and demolish a home yeah you know whoever demolished it was there must be some negligence or there must be some some contribution uh, you know to the whole problem there um but the other thing too is that the, the idea that and this is it's erroneous but this the idea that well I've bought property on land so therefore I can do what I want. And a lot of people say and I hear those those words. I don't buy strata because I, I want to be able to do what I want. It's like you can never do what you want.
3: Yep. <laughs> and- yeah, it's very true. So that yeah, that was problem number one. Um problem number two, well, probably number problem number one was not doing their due diligence, also in terms of the conveyancing and finding out, you know, what is well, what are the issues on the land? Usually with as you would know, with any contract you would have the ten point seven certificate and that allowed everything in there Usually, well, um, actually, I, I,
0: I, I'll I'll step in there. When you say usually, the co- the ten point seven is a prescribed document in a contract to sell in New South Wales, right? Yes. Um, if you are listening to this and you're not in New South Wales, there's various names for zone. It's a zoning certificate, right? So different and different states have requirements as to whether or not the vendor even needs to give you one, right? So you need to get you get one in Victoria, but you don't get one in Queensland, for example. But so are you saying? that that could be incomplete, that actual zoning document?
3: Correct. The, the two, so if it was flood affected, you would say yes on that 10.7 certificate. I say usually again uh, because because what's happened is over time, councils have been slow in terms of adopting and updating their, their maps, so maps like flood maps as well as bushfire maps. So there's been a real delay in those in in transferring that information into this planning certificate, which is I I've been involved with projects where client bought the land and found out later was bushfire affected, even though it didn't say the ten point seven certificate. Wow. So 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 you you can do your due diligence by just getting the copy of that tick tick fine no problem okay and if I was them I'd probably do the same thing and just rely on that okay but been that if you go if you delve deeper into the site you know such a local agent or advisor to someone with local knowledge might say well hang on i remember there was a big flood or this let's check if it's flood effect at the site so again due diligence is pretty key in all of this i'm not saying that it's not a it's not an obvious thing that would have gone Undetected, like if a property's heritage list listed, you would know you know it's pretty clear it's heritage listed, it's on the 10.7 certificate, and your conveyance, so your real estate agent, someone will be, would be able to pick that up pretty easily. So, this is some so it's it's a problem that I see across councils. Bushfire and flooding are things that are often kind of you know hidden somewhere if it's not on the 10.7 certificate, so it can come up. So, I must admit uh it's unfortunate that perhaps they didn't pick it up um possibly because it wasn't easy to fund uh some very few councils have actually their own maps mapping system so you can punch an address and it'll say flood affected or bushfire heritage or they'll have all these layers but some councils don't have that yet
2: but it's not just people that are on the water on the ocean or you know around sort of bays etc that can be flood affected right it can be lots of parts the suburbs that are low lying etc so you know, do you find that sometimes people are surprised that you know they, didn't, they wouldn't assume that that part of the suburb is flood affected, and they you know years down the line they they find that out?
3: Yeah, hundred percent. And all the you know all the rain and floods that we had, you know, a year or two ago with the La Nina and all of that, uh, it really uh, I guess put on the radar this flood council's flooding maps uh, from an insurance point of view, as well as in situations like this where
2: someone buys a property and. I don't know. It's perfect. To- Bushfire is an interesting one. Well, we bought a house last year, and um, it's literally backing onto a reserve. Um, and we knew that straight away, right? So we got a town planner in at um the Northern Beaches Council. Um, but then it was like an education process. What's the different BOW forty or the BOW flame zone, and what does that mean? What does that mean from what do we want to do a renovation? How does that put our costs up? And you know, then we had to speak to some architects who had done reno's on you know what did they have to do shutters etc. And so. It is like once you found out the information, then it's like, you know, how bad is it? You know, is it a risk worth taking on? You know, was there insurance issues? We had to call up insurance companies to find out would they insure the place, etc. So, yeah, I think it's, it's you know, and in the end of the day, it might not be a deal breaker, you know? Like, for example, a heritage facade might be something, a good thing, you know? But at least you're aware of it. And I think that's the, the problem when you don't do due diligence is that it can really come back to bite you down the line. Um, with the flame zone, is that something that, is quite common, you know, a- across our sort of cities? Or do you think that, um, you know, people assume that, you know, they've never seen a fire there, so they just, you know, it could be a little park in, in a street, et cetera. So how common it is it across our capital cities?
3: Well, it depends where you're at. I'm personally based in St Ives, so probably a few hundred meters from a bush from a national park. So I'm um, where you know living here we're very familiar. There hasn't been a bushfire than guys since I lived here. That's right. Uh, but it depends where you are geographically in Sydney. Uh, in saying that, you might be sitting on a site where it's not um, it's not perceived as being bushfire affected, but you might be a few hundred meters away from the bushfire from the the national park, um, and your site might be have a high bowel rating. Uh, bushfire attack level rating, um, because there's a few trees between your house and the and the national park, and the fire can naturally jump and reach your home. So it yeah you've got to yeah it's all part of the the process of due diligence, and it's not a foolproof process. I must admit, you know, we're human; we all make mistakes. Um, it, again, it's not like a heritage listing or you know something easily detected on the the planning on the council maps or on the tent t- on the planning certificate it's something that also can be very um subject subjective and uh, now you have two different in um flooding engineers looking at a map they might think might they might see it differently um just like two bushfire consultants might read a map and say well hang on it's at this bell rating on that bell rating so it is in a way there is a system though to, to measure these things right i'm sure i'm not a I'm not an engineer I'm not a bushfire consultant but there are systems in place to measure these things but sometimes you've got a there's there's a human element involved
0: We interviewed uh <sighs> unfortunately I can't remember the name but I do remember the book the book's an amazing book and it's called Brisbane a city with a river no a river with a city problem uh some episodes back and it was really fascinating around, uh, I guess, the the creation of the real problems around flooding in Brisbane, but also, and one of the things that um, Megan Wells, who's uh, my partner and um, home buyer academy, she's a Brisbane-based buyer's agent. She talks about overland flooding. Everyone thinks about flooding, sort of a wall of water, you know, coming from a from a, a dam that's overflowed, or perhaps a river that river system that's, um, in, you know, flooded. And I was actually in Brisbane last week and literally going up and down the, the, the river on the ferry, just really just sort of visualising, you know, what had happened and, and what had been devastated, et cetera, et cetera. So just an interesting sort of, I guess, thought process. But it's not just the overland flooding and the floods from rivers and drains and things filling up. And I've seen low-lying areas in Sydney flood as well when there's been a deluge of rain. But recently we saw a property that was flood affected, even though it's not in a low-lying area, and apparently it's because of an underwater spring. So it's just phenomenal where water can come from, you know, when there's there's too much water in the system. So, and I guess I'm a little alarmed that you're saying that the councils are, can be, and I know there's an inconsistency from council to council. We know this in our own due diligence process in our business when we're buying property for people, that some councils' websites are really amazing and we always make sure we speak to a council town planner as well uh, as relying on what they have online. But the very fact that the 10.7, which used to be known as the 149 certificate, May not be up to date, even though their maps may reflect something different. That is absolutely alarming. So you know it's bad enough in terms of trying to get the information to make good decisions, buying property, and knowing what you don't know. But that's actually freaked me out a little bit. I have to say, would you say that is common?
3: Yeah, it's very common. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, yeah, like you, like as a planner, town planner, we're very into you know, numbers and calculations and also the legal, the legislation, things that are written, you know, it, the building has to be this high, it can't go smaller, you know, bigger than this in terms of, you know, we're, so with, when it becomes a subjective thing like flooding, you know, uh, bushfire, those types of natural things, it becomes um, tricky to to predict, number one, what are the impacts, and number two, okay, I want to flood affect the site my building has to be raised a bit higher, could be 300 mil higher than the flood level. Uh, Even I've seen, I've had approvals for clients even where the council says, okay, your boundary fences have to have a gap, certain height. So in the case of a flood, the water just rushes through and over to your neighbor or whatever. So you you have to, yeah, I agree. It's not people think about a flood, you know near a, near a dam or whatever. Like you see, you've seen recently in, in New South Wales, um, but in like metropolitan Sydney, it becomes a very real problem. Uh, but I've had, you know, speaking of building heights and things, I've had projects where the, the the property is was flat affected, and what we we propose to council is the building has to be this high, but that'll breach the height limit. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a double edged sword. While we're trying to make sure that if there is a flat, God forbid, the the residents won't you know be impacted as much. But we need to tick a box with council, so it's a bit of um, a mess, uh, <laughs> you got a sandwich,
0: uh, you got a building that's yeah. sandwiched between a height restriction yeah. and a flood restriction. God, so tell us, what are some of the other things that people erroneously assume that they can do that you come across uh, with their own properties in particular?
3: Uh, removing trees, <laughs> probably, but they might be in the middle of your site. You just want to clear so you can put, you know, townhouses or something. So trees is a relation. Um, also, sloping sites too. So what we're talking about are all natural features of a site, right? Uh, the slight, that if the site slopes to the rear, as you guys would probably know, it usually requires an easement uh, through your back neighbour. So when you're doing a simple due diligence, does if a site slopes to the rear? You might be able to get a beautiful house approved or development approved, except you need to to um, channel your your water through your back neighbour, acquire an easement, which is an extra cost. Your neighbor's probably going to say no, so so then what happens with your 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 house or your building, your approval? So yeah, there's a lot of factors we can talk for hours about due diligence, uh, but then I uh, yeah people make mistakes all the time, and people are human, as I said before. Um, but as a town planner, as an advocate for the client, it's our job there to ensure the risks are mi- as minimal as minimal as possible. Number one, but number two, say, as well as this is a DA. If it's a DA, it's it's not guaranteed to get approved. Even a complying design, however, it's if it's a CDC, a complying development, it has to tick the boxes 100%. So, in, so naturally, you would comply, and and it would get approved. Uh, but but when you're dealing with councils, you know, and I have to give my clients a disclaimer, we'll do everything physically possible to get you an approval. But we have, even though I've worked at councils before, we have no idea what else council can throw at you and what's underneath the side and, you know, things like that.
0: Because you do, I mean, it's true. And you said some things are subjective. And I know my own personal experience in dealing with council, you sort of think, oh, which town planner am I going to get to assess my application? And some of them have a reputation for being particularly difficult and others have a reputation for being particularly pragmatics, shall we say. And so you sort of cross your fingers and hope that you actually get a pragmatic one, not a difficult one. Um, also, what I guess scares me, you talk about potentially a site that slopes to the rear, which means that because stormwater runoff you know, goes downhill obviously and so therefore, it's going to continue going downhill and, and there's all these things you have to put in stormwater pumps and pump it up, to st- all that sort of complicated stuff, which adds cost. But when that was first subdivided, did nobody think of that? I mean, does this happen in green, in infill in sites, you know, like as, as established suburbs that perhaps were subdivided maybe decades ago when none of this was really thought about? You would hope it didn't happen in, in a newer sub- subdivision. Or does that happen? Is it because somebody, when they first developed or first subdivided the the land, just failed to account for this?
3: Yeah, good good question. So yeah, with infill development, developments within existing suburbs of Sydney or whatever city you're in, that's yeah, it's a it's a consequence of, of of bad planning. It's it's not just bad planning; it's lack of data. Like now you can get flooding information on your computer. You know, 50 years ago, they didn't have that information, right? They had uh, maybe a little map where someone just sketched, you know, okay, there's a flood here. Let's just maybe here, maybe there. We don't know. So you have so the data we've got is a long way accurate now. In terms of new release areas, you go northwest, southwest of Sydney, which used to be farmland, and by the way, probably flood-affected. You do have new homes, and, but uh, but obviously, the council and obviously the developer had in their in their wisdom have put in you know parks in the middle so that the water drains into the park and and things like that. So it has been done
2: properly. But I hope. Uh, yeah, Ellie on the CD. So just in terms of like, let's say someone's listening to this and they've just got a house, for example, um, not say a strata unit, etc. Yeah, you know, could you put like some, what things can you do without any approval? Just some, and what things usually are in the CDC sort of compliant development buckle? And then what things are sort of in a DA? Just that, you know, I guess that simplicity there.
0: Well, break it down for us. Yeah.
2: yeah. So that, yeah. So you kind of uh,
3: categorize it pretty well. So there's three streams of an approval in New South Wales. The first is exempt development. The second is a CDC, so complying development certificate. And the third one is a DA development application. So we've kind of been speaking a lot about DAs and a little bit of CDCs. So what is an exempt development? So exempt development is some. It's basically a self-assessed test. So I was in a seminar many years ago um, where um, the people that introduced or put together these controls, um, these state, state government controls, were there, and they said, "You know what we did." No, Jake, they told us this. They said, we went into Bunnings and walked around and looked at all the things you can do without approval, like a gazebo, <laughs> a, a deck, a yep. uh, pergola. This, this is how the, the, the exempt uh, controls came to fruition. And they walked around Bunnings. This might be a plug for Bunnings. And that, that that's how they developed this list. So there might be, let's say, 50 things on that list even like an aviary, and all these things you can do without approval, uh, thanks to buttocks. Um So essentially, so something that's exempt development is essentially like, a, let's say, a cosmetic uh, improvement to your home. So it could be you want to replace the windows, like for like, on a house, you can do that as exempt, you can paint, you can render, uh, you could do it uh put up a, a a deck in the back garden.
0: Is there a certain so, size though? I was about to say yeah. there's restrictions,
3: twenty square <laughs> meters, twenty-five square meters, can't be nailed, hundred mil from the boundary. There's a lot of these restrictions attached. So essentially you you have all these types of things you can do. And then within each category you have uh restrictions, like the size of the can't be on a heritage property or things like that. But it's a self-assessment tool. So you you get your builder, you say please build me this this deck. and I still meet these requirements? And you yourself tick, a, tick your mental locks, you know, the physical locks, say, so yes, a compliance. That's it. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to tell your neighbours nothing. You've got an exempt, uh, you've got a deck outside your background that's, that's exempt.
0: What about a bathroom renovation?
3: Yeah, so the internal renovations you can generally do without approval. If it's like a structural change, if you've got to knock down a wall, you can often do that through a CDC So of through a... I don't think we spoke about it before, but a, a CDC is something where you lodge to a private certifier instead of going to council. So, you know, the structural walls, uh, if you reconfigure, do internal reconfigurations, like you put a bedroom where there was a bathroom or you put, the kitchen goes with where, where rumpus, that type of stuff also can sometimes need approval of some sort. But generally, I would, I guess, the rule of thumb is if it's cosmetic, you generally don't need approval. Um, the so the second tier is CDCs, so compliant development certificate. You can build a new house
0: in certain locations. In
3: certain locations, <laughs> subject to certain size, not yeah. flood affected, not bushfire affected. Uh, in those, can, you can also build a a warehouse. So um, if you've got the right select in the right location in New South Wales, you could build a warehouse uh, under a CDC up to ten thousand square meters
2: of floor area even multiple dwellings, right? Like townhouses in some suburbs that you basically buy a block of land and lodge a CDC and know that it's going to get approved in a short time frame, right? Um,
3: yep, townhouses, dual Um You've been able to do granny flats. So for the last, I think, 15, maybe 10, 15 years or so, you can do a granny flat under this system. I think the granny flats were the first type of development you could do under a CDC, and then it evolved to houses and Industrial buildings and um, you can also do like if you've got a, a business, you will put a restaurant there and it was a clothing shop. You can get a change of use for a fit-out. So there's also retail uh, benefits too. Um, not but it's benefits to the retail industry too. There's complying development uh, route.
0: So is it, were they created really just a streamline because there was just so much red tape and and the bottleneck of obviously of council approval to uh, in in non-sensitive or insensitive, non-sensitive locations where the impact is minimal, you know, to others or whatever their concerns are about the impact to streamline the approval process so there wasn't the bottleneck. So it's amazing that we've got this sort of supply shortage that we have at the moment. Imagine it would be a lot worse if there hadn't been a move towards CDCs in some locations.
3: Yeah, that, that the intention was that oh, most of applications in New South Wales would be C D C, and there would only be a handful of DAs. But as we all know, Sydney is not a flat, uh, flat topography where there's no trees or bush or uh, uh, flood or beaches or water, water streams. It's it's a very mixed topography. So naturally, you more often than not you, you are having to load DAs. Plus, also people want. Bigger homes, too, on their plot of land. So with a CDC, you can only build it, you know, this much. Whereas a DA, you might be able to build it this much. Right. Yeah. But 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 Chris, you were saying your property was in a, you know, flames So you, you so you you can't do a CDC, right? But I've heard situations before where if you were to lodge a CDC, you would actually get more floor space than with a DA. I don't know if that happened in, in your situation, but you there's pros and cons for both but but actually yeah the, the idea of you know exempts you know the, there was a time when I was working at a council where um people were people wanted to install solar panels no joke, this is probably um, 12 13 years ago solar panels back then were pretty new and obviously expensive and we were telling people you need to lodge a DA for a solar panel and then people worked out well hang on, why don't we just throw it in there as exempt. Okay, so it's exempt now. But then the question came up, well, what if your property's heritage listed and they plonk some solar panels at the front of this beautiful terrace or whatever it is in, in the Newtown? And now that's a normal. You can't do solar panels at the front of the property. So the, so it, the, the controls have evolved. And I think it, it's been done in a clever way, like starting from going to Bunnings and working their way down. Um, you know, for example, during COVID also, there, there were controls that are left that that the government um, released to approve to help businesses also. So it, it's a wide range of um,
2: applications, CDCs. Ellie, if you t- if you get it wrong, right? Let's say you um you yeah you know, build something that should have been a CDC or should have been a development application. When does it really start to catch you out? Like, or you buy a property? Um, we often see this actually that something hasn't been approved or something has got a pool compliance certificate, the deck wasn't approved, you know, bedrooms have changed. Yeah. How does it, you know, if they sell it, you know, how does it all play out? Like whether you're trying to, when does it catch you out?
1: I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my Buyers Agent Mentoring Programme, access to suburb help for investors or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If
2: you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly get the finance right. Please reach out via our website wealthful.com.au.
1: Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? elephantintheroom.com.au.
3: So, the, the, so, yeah, the, the the way to, I guess, resolve it in New South Wales is something called a Building Information Certificate or a BIC, a BIC. So, the, the lead, so like, yeah, there might be a granny flat out the back that was being there for 50 years. What do you do with that? So, maybe we'll take that as an example. So, you can either leave it there nobody would know, right? But that in in most cases that I see it's only where the neighbor has complained and that's where uh, the council has to follow through the complaint and then it you have to go in there and patch things up with you know you have to pull down some walls or whatever you have to fix things because chances aren't didn't it wasn't built um, to comply with with not just the council controls but also the, the building regulations. So you have to, it's a bit kind of, a, it's a bit of a cart before the horse situation. So you, you've got to, I guess, fix what was done. And most cases it wasn't done properly. So you'd have to either either have like an alternative solution or you have to knock some parts down.
0: In your experience, like councils prepared on, in the balance of, you know, balance of uh, examples, are they prepared to negotiate and work with the owner to come to a resolution, or do they dig their heels in it and say, "Nut, nah, you got to demolish"? I mean, I have come across some examples in my own working history where people have been told they had to demolish or that to fill in an excavated room, or the, you know, some fairly drastic sort of um, solutions. But I've always also got the sense with those examples that I've been aware of those owners had aggravated council to the point that council just went hardline with them. Would that be a fair to say that? Or would you say that there are different councils or different plant or different um, jurisdictions perhaps that are more likely to force you to make good than others? I mean, you know, how pragmatic or how commercial are they?
3: It, yeah, as you, you were kind of alluding it to before, it depends who you get in council ultimately and there's not one council that's better than the other, really. Uh, we've got projects in probably almost 30 councils around New South Wales. And, you know, it's really hard to pick or choose, tell you which one's the easiest to work with. Um, but I, I like to tell people it's a partnership. It's us and council working together to get an outcome for your client. Because you know it's not, it should have really been us versus them battle because otherwise as you said it's just gonna get messy and you're gonna end up in you know um you know current of faith you know but uh it's just messy. So you uh you have you've got to um work together and you will probably have to make compromises for your client like knocking down a wall or or filling in that excavated room. Um because sometimes you believe it or not, don't tell anybody, I'm sure no one's listening you can't always get what you want.
0: Oh, no, it's just such a shocker, isn't that? <laughs> oh, and it's
3: your piece of land, I agree, except there's rules and boundaries that you have to follow. Otherwise, you'd, you'd end up with a disaster of things going on. Like, uh, well, well, speaking of unauthorised work, you'll like this one. At, at and at another council, I used to work at, uh, you know, the building officers used to come <laughs> to us, town planners, for questions they had about some legal work or and vice versa. So... Once a man of the building officers came to me and said, you know, look at this. This was, I'm not saying where it is, but somewhere in Sydney, someone had a pool. They emptied the pool and put a roof on it. <laughs> yeah. okay, oh, my God, that's no wrong joke. for so many reasons. <laughs>
0: but
1: so this many is a, reasons.
3: It was unbelievable. I would have mind checking it out myself. But, you know, people do all crazy things. As some are naive, like the you know these people in this they were talking about in this flood affected site, there's some people that try to be sneaky and squeeze things here and there, and that ultimately they will get found founded out either if they sell the property, like what you were saying, or one of the neighbors is going to build them in. Most of the time, something will
2: they'll, they'll they'll get found out. Ellie, on the um, the like the lodgement of DAs you say there's like potential um let's say you you, you're trying to push the boundaries right let's say the the council controls and the the neighbors are all the nimbyism is rife in the suburb and everyone doesn't want change right um and you know you're going to get lots of objections do you find that sometimes people go for a lot more than ideally the you know the uh, nirvana of what they want right but they sort of say they freak people out and they say "Look, this is what i'm going to build and then they know they're going to have to make compromises right And that that is part of the negotiation process. Is that I could have built X, but now I'm doing X minus three. Um, Do you find that that's potentially a strategy that you know that, that sometimes works in terms of you, you know, if you go in asking for that, and then they're going to ask you to negotiate anyway. So you sort of have to go in and ask for potentially the dream, and then start making cutbacks. Well, hundred percent, and I think it's appropriate to say
3: that's probably called the elephant in the room strategy, <laughs> 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 because yes, sometimes you do. You, you might say, okay, you know, you want, especially with large developments, I guess you want council to approve this, but hang on, what about that? But let let you know, let council draw their attention to that while you you get this you know approved on your. Project. So that's one strategy. Are well, you going
0: which, trying to get 40 stories where you've costed it all along at
3: 35, and <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, you, you do that all the time. Um, and also with like a home renovation or like, a, like, as you said, a large development, you can do that. Uh, but also, there's, um, as, as I was saying before, you need to give your client realistic expectations in terms of what you think they're going to achieve on their property. So, for example, yeah, you might go for a, a a project um, that involves 10 apartments right uh, except the default position is okay will we'll, what we need to scrape this through to make it available product is nine units okay. so you go for 10 and chop chop it down to nine make them a little bit bigger or whatever the case may be so there's always a backups backup player that tears so even for even if you build out the like car porch, In the front of your house, I wouldn't stop. Once you need a backup plan because there's no absolutely no guarantee you're going to get an approval. Number one, number two, you you also for sure you you can try push the limits if you want, but you have to know there's going to be a risk. It's going to cost you more. It's going to take you six months to get an approval. Plus, your neighbors will 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 object to your application because it's blocking out their view or whatever it is. It's way over the floor space or the height control. So there are strategies where you, for sure you can do that with de, you know, seasoned developers. And um, for mums and dads who just want to get their, you know, project home or their renovation approved quickly, you have to bring them in line. And that's what I was saying before that I do. We, you know, you've got to bring clients in, in line as well as sometimes architects who might think, you know, we can do this, but hey you can only build this. And so sometimes we have to find a middle ground. Okay, we'll we we'll come to a comp- an internal compromise that, okay, we'll lodge this and let's see what council says. Council might say, well, no, we have to bring it back even further than what, than what we expected.
2: So Yeah, it's a strange we use all the time. When the irony is that it's your home, right? So if you go and uh, piss off all your neighbours um, and you fight with them for multiple years to get the home that you ultimately want and whether you get it or not, the, you've already pissed them off, right? Then you finally build it and then you want to live there and every time you leave your front door, you bumped into your neighbours, right? Um, and so it, it's how do you sort of tackle the neighbor where ultimately it's your land and you want to get a home that's amazing for you and your family, right? But then it's also gonna compromise something towards them, whether it's light or privacy or their view or I don't know, whatever it might be. How do you how do you best approach that? Do you do you find? Yeah, good question. I
3: tell people, unfortunately you can't choose your neighbours. Right? But what I do tell them is before, if they're going to lodge a DA, go before they lodge a DA, go over to the your neighbor's house, put a set of plans, preferably with your architect, want like your town planner, because your architect drew the plans, they know what they're talking about, and say, hey, this is this is what we're going to do. Now obviously this is in the context of a DA because something we didn't distinguish before was if you're lodging a complying developer the neighbors don't have a say, uh, they are notified formally, it's just a, it's just a courtesy saying we've approved this new house, you know, or whatever is next door to you and that's it. With the a DO, there's an ability for notice to get involved. So I guess that's in, in this situation, you are talking about Chris. So get them involved, at least show them the plans, bec- and and they can say no to different things and you can say, yes. Okay. Okay. You, you, you don't have to agree on anything. But, but they might want a privacy screen here or lower the deck here or the pool should be here instead of there. there you can in you know, the sometimes come to a compromise with them. Whereas sometimes you might just not listen to them at all and lodge your DA. Your neighbor will object again. He objects formally and then you have to make some changes just to appease the neighbors. Um, oh, I'm so to say so. But in that, I guess, let's call it that consultation, if you appear with your neighbors, you don't have to make any changes. But council, but council, and you can tell them to the neighbours, okay, we're going to lodge this and let council, I tell people, let council be the umpire. They're going to be the umpire. If they like it, they like it, they don't, then that will change it. You know?
0: It's an interesting one though. I mean, I've done three renovations and each time I've approached the neighbours beforehand and, and the, then, you know, you as the person wanting to put through your development and be reasonable with your neighbours is one thing, but you can't always guarantee you've got reasonable neighbours. I've, I've, you know, my neighbors now are amazing. They d- basically said, look, we're all for the whole area being improved. Um, and we're supportive of that, you know? And so, um, and I worked with them on just a couple of little things that, that were important to them and we made compromises as well. Whereas I've had other neighbors who've been fantastic also, but other neighbors who've been very resentful and, and dug their heels in, you know, like, and I've had counsel say things like, you know, like a view, loss of view when I had another property in Balmain and, and they said, well, you can't, you can't, you can claim loss of view, I think, tell me if I'm wrong from say a living area, but you can't claim it like from a bathroom or from your laundry. And yet, because we had an elderly woman over our back fence who said, well, no, I can stand on my laundry step and I, and, you know, and I won't be able to have the same outlook. They, they actually seemed to sympathize with her. Um, as opposed to, but it's your laundry step, you know. <laughs> and Then the councillor came up to me and said, don't worry, you could actually plant a big tree there. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe that the councillor came and took me aside and said that to me. It was like, right, okay, you know. <laughs> yeah, well,
3: you, you described it quite well. The, like, If your project went to court, they wouldn't even consider that as a view from the neighbour's laundry step. Yeah, it it's uh, again just like dealing with councils, you're your your neighbours, um, it's a compromise and and something you know like I should say too, like as a town planner dealing with multiple councils at one time, but your the, the councils are not going anywhere, so you need to have a, a good relationship with them, and we can have a whole discussion about that another time, and and the same goes with your neighbours, um, if you want, you know, Chris, you were saying you know if you lodge an application, your neighbours just uh, you end
2: up building it. to the, you, you might not want to lift there that ball.
0: I've come across lots of people have sold after after that experience, yeah.
2: Well, that's why, reason I said it, I've known someone who's done that, right? They've gone through the, the stress of it all and the end of it, they just, it's not, an, it's uh, can't leave the house. They just have pissed off the neighbours too much. Um, When it goes, and I've got a, a client at the moment, Um, it's one of the most expensive suburbs in Sydney, which... To be honest, it is a bit of a. I feel like it's a suburb where everyone's fights because they know it's worth so much money, right? In this suburb, you know, lower North Shore to get a DA approved, um, and everyone's fighting for their um, their DAs, right? So it's almost like everyone's pissing everyone off um, in this suburb, right? Um, and it's not going well. It's it's sort of what's it's in the courts, right? So when you mentioned the courts, there, like, can you explain when it starts to you lodge it with council? Council's got objections. Neighbours got objections. Um, how it sort of, you know, goes to different courts and who sort of ultimately makes those decisions where there's this all, cause it's not just as black and white as right. Oh, it's declined. Right. There's appeals and there's, how does that sort of roughly play out? Yeah. So there's a good question. So there's two,
3: um, two options for going to court. So one is where you lodge your application, your DA might be a home renovation or a block of apartments or anything in between. It doesn't matter what it is. You, you lodge a DA, you wait 40, basically 42 days, and then you lodge your appeal through the Land Environment Court. That's one option. The other option is you um, lodge a DA, you wait however long it is, and your DA gets refused. You can appeal that decision also within six months of that a refusal date. So those are kind of the two ways to, I guess, get your door, get your foot in the door in court. Um, the, yeah, the, the going to court is like a whole other podcast and and a strategy. But it's similar, I guess, if you jump back to what we were talking about before, in terms of a strategy, um, you, you you put your plans in for this. It's a little bit higher. Um, that's a strategy, and you can take that to court, knowing that that top level. Or whatever's going to be contentious, and then you could thrash it out with cancel in court, and you may end up just losing that top level in the end. So, um, uh, so that so there's the strategies for for the actual design of what you're going to build. If it, if you're not planning to take something to court, then you would you design a little bit differently. You don't you don't be as uh, let's say bullish.
0: Yeah, it's a good question there, Chris. I'm glad you because I hadn't even thought about taking this conversation there, but. Um... Because I've heard a lot of people say they basically lodge their plans with the intention to go to court. And I also know there's a there at like Birch Grove, for instance, a little suburban city that seems to find its way on every single top 10 list, uh, whether markets going up or down. But that's quite a, you know, it's there's a, there's a um it's well known locally. It's another reason to use a local buyers agent. You mentioned earlier, if you're going to use a buyers agent, use locals because they know this sort of stuff. We know the particular pockets where the neighbours are particularly, um, I guess, anti-development, even though they've probably done their own quite.
3: It's it, it's special. Yeah, Birch Grove is special. I had a project in Wolf Road.
0: Oh, there you go. Wolf Road. The Wolf Road, yeah, Mafia is basically what I was thinking of.
3: Yeah, it's a special area. Yeah. It's
0: a very special area that everybody objects. Everybody knows that everybody objects, even though there's lots and lots of new development that goes there. People knock down houses all the time and rebuild quite you know, ambitious sort of projects often. Is, the, is going to court the province though of people who have already got a lot of money, is it is it an attitude that is like, you know what, I can afford to get what I want and I see everyone else around me getting what they want. They just have to you know add another 50 grand or whatever they, they allocate to the budget to force it through to get what they want. Is, is that part and parcel? <laughs> is it a privilege of being in an area with very, very expensive property that you can afford to buy in the first place and renovate and then also push through? Uh, in an aggressive way, would you say, or is that being a little bit... um...
3: Well, no, you're 100%. Yeah, going to court is not cheap, and and cheap exercise. Um, I'm involved in multiple court cases at the moment, and a couple of years ago we had a childcare project that took, I think, almost three years. Uh, Ended up in court, got refused. I based on a very small technicality, and the client said to me, early, I've spent 330 grand. Well. And what did I get for it? So, oh, he was a developer. Mine wasn't just a regular mum or dad. But still, it's a huge cost. So I agree with it. Depends where it is. But, but at the same time, like having clients of mine in the eastern suburbs that just want a car space on their little block of land. Dan, do you know how valuable that one car space would be on a little block of land in and so they're prepared to go to court for that. And I have been to court for those things
2: before and we've been successful just through a car space. Sorry, the, the court option uh, is like if the council sort of does decline it or refuse it, right, let's say, but you genuinely think that it should be approved and then you basically hire legal representation. But the council's also got legal representation, right? They've got their own lawyers. And you're sort of trying to negotiate your way through, even though it doesn't fit policy or the regulations or the guidelines, you you think that it should be approved. Is that sort of generally where that, you know, you do do a development that maybe is pushing the boundaries a bit or it is going over the height limit, or maybe it's going too close or the setback or the ratio is a bit high, but maybe you've planting you know, is it sort of part of, if you're doing something that maybe is pushing the boundaries, you, you you have to really get great legal representation, and that should be part of your overall process. Is knowing that this is the avenue you're going to have to go down from the start.
3: Yeah, yeah, I should, yeah. To, to kind of answer that question, I'll start off with there's t- there, the, the the process for court. We didn't discuss that. There's kind of two steps. The first step is mediation, and then the second step is a, a hearing. Now, both of those steps is in front of a commissioner. <clears throat> so of the Land Environment Corp, but most times I saw a statistic the other day on LinkedIn. I think almost fifty percent of court cases are resolved through negotiation. So most and most you know, likewise, I've already been in 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 a sorry a full hearing uh, a handful of times where you get cross examined by lawyers and things. That's you know in sitting in a courtroom. Where are at, at, you know, it's a bit scary sometimes. But most of the time, going okay, to court, land environment court is not sitting in a courtroom. It is sitting at a table with counsel. You on one side, them on the other side, which sometimes is very hard to catch them in a meeting. That's sometimes why some developers take counsels to court because they simply can't have a meeting with them. And you sit down and go through, okay, these are the issues. Literally, you get a list of all the issues. Okay, there's 20 issues here. Let's discuss each of them. You go through it systematically. This one we can resolve. This one we'll bring the height down. It's ten apartments at the moment. We'll lock it down to nine. That'll tick a lot more boxes. So it becomes a negotiation process. You do have to make compromises going to court. So it's whereas and you would think that too, in in the context of keeping your dear in council, you're not privileged to that to that option of. Negotiations to that full extent of negotiation, so that that's why people take go to court.
0: Which is interesting because the thing is that okay, so if you get to mediation, they're basically forcing to come to the table with them. But if it actually gets to court, it goes from being it goes purely on the letter of law, right? So they're basically interpreting because because um, LEPs and DCPS are all legislated, correct? Yes. So that that's why it becomes a law thing, right? It's really about the wording of yeah. the law. Um, as opposed to, well, I don't think it's fair. I should be able to get bigger floor space, you know, <laughs> or I should get another level on. It comes down to how the interpretation of that legislation, right?
3: Yeah. And you have experts, too, experts in court. So you'll have your ex. So obviously, your employee, uh, you know, you have a good team. Chris was saying you need a, a good lawyer. So obviously, you're a good lawyer, planning solicitor. You need your, your experts. So your experts usually include your and plan on if let's say it's in a heritage area like Birch Grove or somewhere like that, you need a heritage consultant who is your expert that might be in a flood affected area, you have your flood expert, the water expert so you have, depending on the size of the drill, you might end up with at least half a dozen experts on your team and each of those consultants charge by the hour and you know, obviously that, that that fishes up the the, the, the price of the project still your experts are there to talk to council's experts so we've had situations where the commissioner will tell us well let's say there's three experts today each of you go into a different room or whatever and talk about it and that's what you do you talk about it um and you go through all the issues and say okay well this is reasonable this is not in most in most cases you can end up with an approval just by talking to people and some councils yeah the 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 Depending on the type of project, also depending on the number of objections and the interest, like for a lot of the childcare centre projects we get involved with, they are contentious. Um, we have to take it to court because, because you might have 50 or 100 objections and how, how can council approve a, a childcare centre with 100 objections?
0: Yeah, and look, obviously the bigger the stakes, you know, the the more potentially the payoff from going to court as opposed to an individual homeowner. But there's one thing we haven't talked about before we ask you your dumbo because I'm sure you got plenty for us. Um, the pre DA pr- process, because in a way that's sort of getting sitting down with counsel before you actually lodge a delay DA and and um, year slip delay and and trying to understand whether what you're thinking you want to do is actually likely to be. Um, Within the realms of possibilities, do you? I mean, do you? For, I know some people advise some town planners and architects advise not doing that, not alerting council to what you're thinking, and others would never do one without doing a pre DA. I mean, what's? I guess what are some of the? What, what do you think of that as a part of the process?
3: Yeah, so pre DA is essentially yeah, where you lodge your concept plans to council and have a an upfront discussion with them. Now, you, you would only lodge a pre DA, I think, if you. If you're pushing some things with the council regulations, number one. Number two, if you've never worked in that council before, black like we've done projects in New South, in regional New South Wales where we lodge a pre DA for every project because I bet you know, we, we don't know exactly what the council requirements are, for example, what the but, but at the same time we we would usually have a pre da with council and we would know ninety to ninety five percent of what the issues are gonna be or what's gonna be discussed at the meeting. But there's always that five, ten percent where Okay, well, by the way, council might say oh, it's flat affected, or Adam, oh, well, there's a big. T- we had one recently for a childcare centre in Hills Shire Council, and that, and they told us by the way, right behind your site, um, there's been an approval for a retirement village, which we didn't know, you know, which is very helpful because now we've we're going to be designing this childcare centre knowing that there's going to be however many balcony is overlooking my client's site so the pre-da is, is an invaluable exercise i hear people when they say oh pre-da they're just going to tell me what i already know yes most likely but i've had at least one council officer tell me um you, you should lodge a pre-da for something that was pretty trivial and we lodged a pre-da and it got approved after that after we lodged it very in you know, a very quickly that uh an easy manner so it, it's a strategy too um it, again we'll go back to the strategy of having a relationship with council if you if you were to knock on your council's door tomorrow and lodge a da for i don't know 100 units and say hello we're here that, that's not the way to do it you know you have a pre year mini you consult with council because you're working together you don't want to surprise them too much on the flip side there might be a just a a, a car space you, you want approval or a or a new house where you think there might be some opposition, there might be view impacts or you know, so you're not sure, so have a have a pre uh, you know, we were talking before about uh Birch Grow and Inner West Council. In OS they encourage you to have pre DAs. We've had I think on one project, three pre DAs for um two semis, um, in Ashfield because we just because what it does is that, it, it working with council in, in a heritage conservation area, mind you. So, council say, you know, do this and not that, and kind of working with council, even even for a small development.
0: So, you get a bit of buy-in from them and, you know, ho- hopefully that, that's the grease is the wheels. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So, yeah. So, the pre-DA meeting, they'll, they'll tell you these are the issues and you'll be able to work through, I think, 90% of the issues. You'll be able to address most of them. Um, so what we do is when you come to lodge your DA and okay, the DA, we say, we've had this meeting with council, these are the issues and this is how we've resolved them. And there might be some issues, which you, know, you still might want to challenge council for whatever reason it is. And, and then it, we, you'll end up with a much smoother process with your DA it'll, it'll be much quicker for you. And also you're going to be eliminating, um, the number of changes you have to yeah. make to the plans yep. because you'd already yep. you have your set of plans with the pre-DA and then yep. you change them, and you oh, and your other documentation, and you lodge your DA with those plans that have been revised to Got know, it. address
2: yeah. Kev's consent. Ellie, hit us with a hit us with a Dumbo, a mate. Dumbo. <laughs> okay, I have a current client,
3: um, and it involves an extension to a warehouse. This is a massive site in Western Sydney, so we. We, we, we're talking and all of this, and he says to me, it's quite a large extension to the warehouse. And he tells me, by the way, the client got an approval, let's say five years ago, for, for another extension to hit the warehouse. We're talking, let's say, a few thousand square meters of additional floor space. They had an approval uh, for the extension. What what's happened? They've actually built this extension without a construction certificate. Oh. All
0: right. People just think that yeah, they don't re- we didn't even talk about construction certificates.
3: Yeah. <laughs> this is not someone in suburban Sydney's put up a, a granny flat in the back of the house without approval. This is it has been approved, but they didn't get a construction certificate. They didn't so with any DA, you need to satisfy 30, 50 conditions, extra reports and plans, and take it to your certifier, and then you can get your construction certificate. So I said to this, um, cl- the, this project manager said, how on earth did this happen? He said, unfortunately, the client is not a local. They were um, They were scammed by an Italian builder, who is now gone back to Italy and nowhere to be seen. And even I heard recently from him that even the construction certificate number, you know, you lodge it to Yay, he a construction, you get a number, even the number was fake, it was false. So, th-
2: so, oh, dear. so they thought they so, had a construction certificate, but they, they built it yeah, there. and
3: they built it, it is finished. And you you think, where, where are the neighbors? And, yeah, this is an industrial site. So there's not. No one really cares what's going on there, and um, so I'm left with a a DA that we have to lodge on this site. It's, that is that it already that exists is, that is next <laughs> to something that's been approved. Except as we were talking about it before, something that is built with that approve it was approved, but something lodged in this way uh, built in this way probably didn't comply with. Yeah. approval yeah okay in, in any yep. case even if you get an approval for a new home a spec home whatever it is you build it there's gonna be one it's gonna be a few variations of what the final product this is something that has not been um screened or checked by anybody and uh yeah it's uh if said so it yeah, you know, you learn
2: something new every day. Watch this space, I guess. A big exposure, that's <laughs> yes. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ellie, thanks so much for coming on, mate. We definitely should get you back on to talk about. There's obviously a lot to talk about in an hour, so I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, hope our listeners found that valuable. Thank no you. Comment. Thank you. It was fun.
1: If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au or you can email us directly at questions at the elephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.